The army arrived on the streets of Northern Ireland 50 years ago last week. You might well have seen that iconic picture on your television screens. Richard Dannett was a young 20-year-old officer fresh from military academy when he arrived in Belfast in 1971. He would eventually retire in 2009 as General Sir Richard Dannett and head of the British Army. In an article he wrote some years ago, he said that it was only after God saved his life four times that he fully committed his life to him. In 1973, he came under heavy gunfire whilst out on patrol in Belfast, and one of his men were shot, was shot and killed. In 1975, he was caught up in an explosion in South Armagh, which killed the officer standing beside him. Some months later, he fell asleep at the wheel of his car, but managed to drive off the road into a field rather than down a nearby embankment. And then in Germany in 1977, at the age of 26, he suffered a severe stroke. Lying in the hospital bed, he reflected that although he had been a Christian for several years, he knew that he had only given part of his life to Christ, and that what God really wanted was all of his life. He writes, I found on that date a far better way of life. To commit myself wholeheartedly to God was to enjoy that peace and purpose in life that only full commitment to Jesus can bring. It was the beginning of new life in Christ. Lord Dannett, as he now is, is currently the Vice President of the Armed Forces Christian Union and the President of the Soldiers and Ermines. Scripture Readers Association. Cornelius was an army officer as well. Not a green hard like uh, Richard Dannett was, but a centurion in the Italian regiment. We read there in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. This was a cohort from Italy made up of Roman citizens, which was based in Caesarea, the headquarters of the Roman government in Palestine or Syria. A cohort of 600 men and was like a modern army battalion. It was divided into six centuries, and over each century there was a centurion. Cornelius was one of the centurions of the Italian regiment. The centurions were the backbone of the Roman army, an ancient a historian describes the qualifications of a centurion like this. Centurions are desired not to be overbold and reckless, so much as good leaders of steady and prudent mind, not prone to take the offensive, to start fighting wantonly, but able when overwhelmed and hard-pressed to stand fast and die at their posts. Cornelius therefore was a man who first and foremost knew what courage and loyalty were all about. But we read here some interesting things about Cornelius in verse 2, which set him apart from your ordinary, everyday Roman centurion. First of all, we read that he was God-fearing. In fact, 
So was all his family. God fear was that term used for Gentiles who had found a spiritual home within the Jewish religion without accepting any of its traditions or laws. Secondly, we read he was generous. He was aware of the needs of the people around him. His search for God had also made him, given him a love for his fellow man. And then thirdly, he prayed regularly, we're told here in verse 2. Perhaps as yet he did not know clearly the God to whom he prayed, but he prayed anyway. Many people are still like that. They pray to God not knowing exactly who they are praying to. Maybe you were once like that as well. Or even now, you're still not completely convinced of who you address as our Father or dear God. Like a young army officer many years later in Germany, these events recorded in Acts chapter 10 tell the story of how Cornelius became a fully committed follower of the Lord Jesus. It would be the beginning of a new life in Christ for him. So first of all, in verses 1 to 23, we see a lesson learned. On that particular afternoon, uh, verse 3, Cornelius met an angel of God. It wasn't that he might have seen something or, or something that looked like one. We read in verse 3 where Luke records that he distinctly saw an angel of God. For a man who had seen the face of battle and had been recognized for his courage by promotion, it must have been quite a sight that afternoon to cause a hardened soldier to fear, we read there in verse 4. But Cornelius is assured by the angel that his prayers and his giving have not gone unnoticed. However, now he is to send for Peter, who was in Joppa. That was all he was told. No reason is given for the request, only a satnav reading that he is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea, verse 6. And so the following day, Peter in Joppa is up on the roof. He's up on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house by the sea, and he falls asleep whilst waiting for his meal. And there he too receives a vision, verse 11, not of an angel of the Lord, but of this large picnic being set before him, along with this command to kill and eat, verse 13. Peter refuses, because on the sheet, which happened three times, are all kinds of four-footed animals and reptiles and birds, that he, and he had never eaten anything impure or unclean before. But we read here that Peter is chastised for his hesitancy by a voice which declared, verse 15, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And whilst trying to get his head around all of this and what it meant, men sent by Cornelius arrived in Joppa and asked for Peter. And as he is about to go down the stairs to meet them, he hears this voice again saying, verse 20, do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. 
And so the three visitors explained to Peter there in verse 22 the reason for their journey and the request from Cornelius for him to accompany them back to Caesarea. But we read there in verse 23, it was late in the day and the men are invited to stay for the night. It was a lesson learned by Peter. But then in verses 23 to 34, we see a family who were searching. Because two days later, when Peter arrived in Caesarea, Cornelius had gathered his relatives and close friends together to meet him. In verse 25, we have this somewhat bizarre sight of a Roman centurion falling at the feet of a Jewish leader. And Peter tries to convince Cornelius that this was all quite unnecessary, as he was only a man as well. And he explains to this large assembled gathering of the journey that he had been on over the past 72 hours, of what God had been speaking to him about, of how incorrect of him it was to call things anyone impure or unclean. But there was still something bothering Peter about all of this. So in verse 29, he says to them, May I ask why you sent for me? And then it was Cornelius' turn to share his experiences of the previous 72 hours. Peter was now finally with them. And so Cornelius says there in verse 33, Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Barriers were being broken down. The gospel was at work. That is what the gospel does. More than any other diplomatic discussion or agreement, it builds bridges between former enemies in amazing ways. I read a story the other day of a missionary who was once officiated at a communion service somewhere in Central Africa some years ago. And the elder who sat beside him was an old Ngoni chief who could still remember the days when young warriors of the Nungoni had gone off to fight the Senga and the Tambuco tribes, leaving behind them a trail of burned and devastated towns and coming home with their spears red with blood and with the women of their enemies as booty. And now who was sitting around that same communion table? Only Nungoni, Senga and Tambuco sitting side by side, sharing in the same bread and wine, worshipping together as brothers in Christ, their enmities forgotten in the love of Jesus. Then in verses 34 to 43, we have a testimony shared. There in Joppa that day, barriers were being broken down between Jew and and Gentile, when Peter declared in verse 43, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And then he preaches a word of testimony as to who the Lord Jesus was, what happened to him, but that death was not the end, and it was he who has given a commission to share this testimony so that others might believe. Because verse 30, uh, 43, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
because of the situation and the circumstances and this pivotal point in the earliest church, it was, as one commentator has described, Pentecost all over again. For in verses 44 to 48, we have a church established. Verse 44, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message, speaking in tongues, praising God. It was Jerusalem all over again. Cornelius, well, he disappears from the story, never to be mentioned again. We don't know what happened to him. Did he retire in Caesarea? Did he move somewhere else, maybe back to Rome? Did he pastor a church? Did he even die in action? We don't know. But we do know that his life was changed forever that day because it was the beginning of a new life. In Christ. And that's how it works for us as well. Paul reminds us how the grace of God works for all people, even you and me. So listen to these words that he writes to the church in Rome. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's as simple as it gets. It's nothing complicated. It's as simple as a conversation, a request, a cry. But there's also an implication given here as well that those who don't will not. For Cornelius, this was the day which changed his life forever. No matter what happened to him in the future, this was the day that changed his life. But this certainly wasn't the last time we heard of Peter. And without mentioning names, he uses as Cornelius' story to good effect when the direction and policy of the earliest church about the Gentiles was being debated at the Council of Jerusalem in chapter 15. And he reminds the members there, including Paul and Barnabas, that God does not discriminate, so why should they? The Gentiles are saved through the same grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that they are saved by. It used to be more prevalent, and no doubt is still around in certain circles today, where some believers would say, you can't be a Christian and belong to that church or that denomination. And for many years, the finger was even pointed within the Reformed faith. But most certainly at the Catholic Church. And yet I have met down the years many within that church who have experienced the same grace and mercy that I have. They have cried out to the same God for the same forgiveness of their sins, and they have been saved. Some have chosen to move on into independent fellowships, while others, particularly I know in Dublin area, chose to stay and sought to change their parish from within. You see, in Acts chapter 10, there are a number of threads woven throughout it. In it, the earliest church begins to embrace not just his own kind, 
but all mankind who come to faith, no matter who they are, no matter what background they come from, no matter if the Jews even thought them unclean or impure. And the Lord reveals himself to Cornelius, a Gentile, in a personal way, and then through Peter, a Jew, The centurion understands more about what faith really means. In a number of countries today where believers are in a tiny minority, there are an increasing number of stories coming out of them whereby through visions and dreams and angelic experiences, the Lord Jesus is calling individuals and families to himself. I can remember a New Zealand lady called Steph, who our Ross met in Lebanon uh, some years ago, and who spoke here so actually some years ago in Euro, talking about Iranians who she had met, who told her that they had met Jesus in a dream, and he told them to go to a place where they would meet someone who would tell them more. That place was a famous tourist spot that Iranians visited in Lebanon just across the border from Syria before the war, and the person was Steph who was able to give them a Bible in Farsi and even point them to Christ. Never doubt that God can do these things himself and that he relies on us for help. He graciously uses us, but he can do it himself through visions and dreams personally. And we're also reminded here in chapter 10 of what the gospel is simply about. And it is that God raised the Lord Jesus on the third day. And that he commanded us to testify that he is the one whom God appointed judge of the living and the dead. Because everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It was good enough for Peter. It was good enough for Cornelius. And it is good and sufficient for you and for me to give us this new beginning in life. We learned these lovely lyrics earlier on, and with them we're going to close in a few moments. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future, sure, the price it has been paid, for Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains have been released. I can sing, I am free. Yet not Christ, not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray together. Open our hearts, O Lord, to what you have been speaking to us this morning through your word. Open our minds to what you are doing through your church in every corner of the world. We have brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. Open our eyes to look around us at the harvest fields set before us. And open our wills to serve you in it with all our strength. But Father God, we acknowledge before you that before you can do any of these things 
through us. You must begin a good work in us. And so we pray today, O God, that that is exactly what you might do for the sake of the gospel and the glory of the Lord Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.